Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. For more than 130 years, the Statue of Liberty has been a beacon of freedom, of hope for those coming to the U.S. And that's in part because of these famous words from Emma Lazarus chiseled into the base of the statue. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. But lately, those seeking refuge to the U.S. are getting a different kind of message. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. That was Vice President Kamala Harris speaking this week in Guatemala on her first foreign trip since taking office. She also visited Mexico, and in both countries, Harris emphasized the administration's focus on addressing the root causes of migration to the U.S.-Mexico border. In recent months, there has been a record number of migrants coming from Central American countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, hoping to get asylum, fleeing violence and corruption. In April alone, authorities arrested or detained more than 170,000 migrants at the border. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, in for Tanzina Vega, and a check-in on the Biden-Harris administration's approach to immigration is where we start on The Takeaway today. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. With us now is Ariel Ruiz Soto, who is a policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. Ariel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So what is the significance of Vice President Harris's trip to Mexico and Guatemala? Well, first of all, I think it signifies that there's going to be a different U.S. approach to the region one that's focused on co-responsibility and really seeing the capacities of these governments to have a larger role in migration management, meaning not just immigration control efforts, but also thinking about humanitarian pathways, um, legal employment opportunities to come to the United States or to Mexico in that scenario, and to understand and coordinate development easier and more effectively uh, going forward. Of course, two visits are not going to change things overnight, but they do point to the, the, a good direction in understanding how to change the dynamics and how to make sure that the governments can do more and should do more uh, in their own neighborhood. It feels like there's been a lot of mixed um, responses to the vice president's trip here on this side of the border. And one aspect of critique has been um, that she did not actually go to the border, but rather to the interiors of the country. Can you um, talk to me a little bit about maybe why that choice was made? Sure. So um, for us at the Migration Policy Institute, it's been clear that that what's really happening at the U.S.-Mexico border is really a symptom of a regional crisis. And that crisis has to do with the root cause of migration, but also with more systemic factors that have led for years now for more Central Americans to leave the region. So 
Um, I think that here that the focus on the countries of origin is really important in addressing what can be the solutions. Of course, that does not mean that there shouldn't be a visit to the to the U.S.-Mexico border because a visit to the border would actually allow the the press, the vice president's team, and others here in the United States to understand the different changing dynamics in the composition, but also the changing adaptations of smuggling networks as we continue to see this pandemic. Uh, Response through Title 42. So the 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 focus here, I think, is the idea that to really get to the uh, the root of this issue, more has to be done to leverage the U.S. Uh, assistance and influence in the region, so that the governments of Guatemala, Mexico, and in the future, um, El Salvador and Honduras do more to make sure that this is a shared issue. For us at MPI, when we think about the region, we think from Canada to Panama and try to understand what each of these countries can do to have a shared problem with their solutions. So I think that's something for, for the future, for certainly for the future to be considered to go to the border. But at this time, looking at what's happening in the region, I think is, is the right approach. Okay, I want to go back for just a moment to something you mentioned there, and that's Title 42, um, which is something sort of imposed by the Trump administration. It preexisted, but it was really used by the Trump administration during um, the beginnings of the COVID-19 crisis, really to turn away migrants seeking asylum at the border. And it's something that the Biden administration has gotten a bit of critique on continuing. Can you talk to me about what um, the sort of status of Title 42 is right now? Sure. So Title 42 has been in effect now for, I think, over a year, and its focus is on expelling migrants quickly at the border once they're apprehended by the, the, by, by the U.S. authorities. And that is actually, um, in some ways, has uh, misrepresented and triggered additional attempts to cross the border. Uh, what I mean by this is that in, under Title 42, a migrant who is apprehended, say, from Mexico, is quickly sent back to Mexico after being uh, apprehended, and they do not face any significant consequence delivery systems, meaning that they are not put into processing for uh, trying to enter the country illegally. That type of uh, consequence delivery was different before Title 42, where people would actually face consequences for being able to come back again. So essentially what we're doing is we're turning people back to, to their country of origin and Mexico in this case. And in some ways that allows migrants to make multiple attempts to enter. So the figures that we've seen certainly uh, in some cases double or triple counts on migrants. What, what, what I think it's important here too to understand is that Title 42 uh, is based uh, largely on justifications about uh, the COVID uh, situation, both in the United States and in Mexico. And it's it's going to be at some point not sustainable for the United States to continue to do this as conditions continue to improve in the U.S., but also Mexico. What happens afterward, I think, will be really important. What type of system and cooperation the United States has with Mexico, I think, will be significantly important. And I, and I see this visit of the vice president to Mexico as a, as a strong component to lay the foundation for a technical strategy that really uh, sets a, for sets up for a better collaboration. But in reality, Title 42 has really, uh, in some ways, allowed um, more uh, migration attempts uh, to the United States. And in some ways, um, I think that's going to have to be changed. Of course, uh, the fact that this program started under the Trump administration has also made this more uh, more politically difficult to navigate. But when it comes to policy, we'll see what happens after that. So when you're talking about laying the foundation for that relationship between these nations, what do you hear and what do you suspect these nations hear with the discourse of don't come? And maybe importantly also, what are migrants hearing? What, what does that message mean? What is it meant to convey? 
Well, that's a great point. The messaging that the vice president uh, suggested in, in Central America, but also that the Biden administration more largely in the past has, has, uh, has provided is not only intended for the target of would-be migrants themselves, but also for the governments there. The United States is trying to provide some leadership and examples uh, to the region of what their posture is going to be so that the other countries can also respond to this. Now, the messaging here is critical. Messaging matters a lot um, and language matters a lot. And what we saw with the vice president's visit in repeating for migrants not to come to the United States, I think is an incomplete message as they did not focus on how migrants could come legally to the United States if they wanted to. What we need in this approach, I think, in going forward is to understand that for messaging to be effective, we also have to provide alternative avenues for migrants to know that they could come to the United States if they have uh, significant protection concerns or if they're willing to come, uh, for example, to work on their visa programs. Of course, these two uh, issues are, are, are something that the United States still has to work through. Um, and more has to be done to restart the U.S. asylum system. But until we do that messaging uh, to include not only this uh, this ask for them not to come irregularly, but to also try to come uh, through legal channels, I think we won't really be getting to the root uh, of the issue with the migrants and the message will not be as effective. Can you help us to understand the different flows that may be occurring around um, migration, primarily for economic reasons, which you sort of hinted at there around sort of the work visa possibilities versus migration that is really about refugee status. Sort of what does our current framework say about um, that capacity to enter the country through a legal means in one of those two ways? The U.S. protection or asylum system is really focused on, on, on protection. It's focused on people who are fleeing persecution on a particularly narrow set of guidelines. And I think those guidelines are what we need to talk about and to, and to think about finding complementary protection, for example, like Mexico does, that allows a broader range of people with uh, who are fleeing generalized violence, um, internal conflict, or other significant measures to be able to be eligible for some uh, some type of protection. But right now, our, our categories are, are quite narrow, and um, and that's something that we should talk about. But in terms of the larger aspect here of, of what, for example, others can do, including Mexico here, is to try to understand what, what type of capacity needs does Mexico have, Canada, Costa Rica, others, so that these migrants can have a, a way to go there. Now, it's important to, to distinguish that motivations for why people flee or come to the United States in, from each of the Central American countries are quite different. And different not only within, not only across the countries, but within the countries. In Guatemala, for example, economics and and, and really income-related motivations for migration are, are are the majority of what we hear migrants uh, suggest. In Honduras, uh, political instability and corruption are higher up in the in the, in the list, but also economic conditions. And El Salvador has uh, sort of transitioned from being a a root cause motivating uh, factor of predominantly violence and insecurity to one now also of um, of economic opportunity. And so, economic opportunity here is the is the 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 factor that weaves through the three countries. And until we actually provide more avenues for people who uh, can come to the United States and uh, and return to their countries uh, for employment, I think we're going to continue to see some migrants whose only recourse is to try to seek asylum for them to enter the United States for employment and for other reasons. 
It certainly seems that um, President Biden, having learned from his uh, two terms as Vice President Biden and and the ways that the Obama administration was understood as the deporters in chief, has taken a different tact here, right? Deportations are actually at a record low, even though detention is still quite high. And I'm wondering, just from kind of the political calculus, what you think Biden would call a win on the question of migration and immigration at the border it's uh it's 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 a work in progress but at least a short-term win could be the changing composition of those migrants that do come to the united states in reducing family uh, the apprehensions of family and children uh to the united states i think that could be a a realistic expectation for the united states to achieve and going forward with its partners to focus on reducing that type of migration again by providing not only uh enforcement controls, but really opportunities for humanitarian protections. If we focus on those vulnerable groups, I think we can make some changes in the composition of migration going forward. Ariel Ruiz Soto is a policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Now, we just talked about Vice President Harris's visit to Mexico and Guatemala, where she focused her visit on preventing migration toward the U.S. But she rarely touched on some of the root causes of immigration from the region, including rampant violence due to the decades-long war on drugs. In Mexico, more than 250,000 people have died from violence since 2006, and more than 61,000 have disappeared. Many of the guns used by organized crime groups in Mexico come from the United States. And as our next guest has been reporting, the network of gun smuggling into Mexico is leaving thousands dead in its wake. Here with me now is Yoan Grillo, a journalist based in Mexico City and author of Blood Gun Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels. Yoan, great to have you. Great to be here. All right, so I wanna begin by setting the foundation. Tell us how the gun industry in the U.S. Um, is peculiar um, in this space. Sure. So, you know, the United States has by far the biggest firearms retail market in the world. There's about 393 million guns in civilian hands, according to the last count. It's probably more than 400 million guns now, which is more than the next 25 countries combined. So that's you know way different than anywhere else. But as well as the legal retail market, you have a parallel black market in firearms um, where guns are being moved around to um, different places to criminals. And it's from this black market that guns also flow over the, the southern border to Mexico and to beyond to more than 130 different countries. And this is the straw purchasing that you write about? Sure. So there's there's like four different methods that guns move from this legal firearms market to the illegal market. One of them is straw purchasing, where you pay somebody with a clean record to go and buy a gun. Um, it's not actually a crime of straw purchasing. It's a crime of lying on the form. And most people are only given probation for that, even when they're buying large amounts of AK-47s, AR-15s, these kind of guns directly for cartels. There's also uh, people abusing the uh, private sale loophole, as it's known as, and, and, and uh, buying guns with no paperwork at all. And then there's people getting guns through theft or through ghost guns. And they're also buying guns in parts and assembling them here in Mexico and other parts of Latin America. 
I feel like when we talk about smuggling or we talk about the drug war, the presumption is always that it is um, something bad in the South moving across the border into uh, the U.S. But part of what is so counterintuitive about what you give us here is that the smuggling goes from those U.S. guns south. How is it that the smugglers manage that? The, 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 the smuggling is certainly two ways in this. You know, you do have large amounts of drugs going north, cocaine, crystal meth, heroin, fentanyl, and still marijuana, but also there's huge amounts of firearms going south. And we're talking about estimated numbers of more than 200,000 firearms every year. So the last decade, like two, more than two million guns going to the hands of criminals here, including the most violent cartels. Now, once you get to the southern border, it's quite easy to drive in south. The same as it's quite easy, really, to bring uh, drugs north. I mean, only uh, an estimated 20 percent or so of the drugs being smuggled north are actually captured. The other 80 percent make it through into uh, American drug consumers. So you drive south uh, often. And I did one interview with one gun smuggler in prison in Ciudad Juarez. He was going every weekend and buying uh, AR-15s and other guns from gun shows in Dallas area. And he was hiding them in cookers and fridges and taking them over the border uh, and then paying off a cartel for the right to uh, move over the passage and taking them down and sending them to various cartel affiliates and others in the Chihuahua area. So how is it that I would know that these guns weren't just purchased at a gun store in Mexico? Where in Mexico, there's only one store in the entire country selling new guns. Uh, that store's here in Mexico City, where I am right now. It's run by the army. To go in there, you have to hand in your cell phone and go through a bunch of metal detectors. It's a bit like going into a prison or something. Uh, and then you arrive there and you need like seven types of ID, including a letter from your boss and a clean criminal record. Um, so there are some guns acquired there by security companies and so forth, but the criminals prefer just going to the United States. That's their, 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 uh, a bit, the biggest method of getting guns. There are also some firearms which are stolen uh, here or, or leaked from security forces, or there's one gun seller I interviewed who was uh, selling back guns onto the streets that had been seized from criminals. But if you look at the numbers, the big majority... Uh, are coming from the United States. So what does any of this have to do with Vice President Harris's trip to Guatemala and to Mexico this week and and what she was trying to do there? Well, you know, this same uh, Iron River of firearms that goes into Mexico also goes down to Central America, to Honduras, El Salvador. And you've seen there at times they've become the most violent countries in the world. Uh, and, you know, a huge amount of, of killing. Now, a lot of people from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and from Mexico um, who are asking for refugee status in the United States are fleeing very severe violence. I mean, you look at these cases uh, and the numbers are very high from all of these. And you can see people who have, you know, there's, there's one uh, person who I interviewed who was being carried along the migrant trail because she'd been paralyzed from the waist down in a shootout. And, and literally her, her husband and a friend were taking it in turns to carry her. Uh, another guy shot in both legs. People who have suffered very, very brutal crimes and threats. And if the United States uh, wants to reduce this, this northward flow, 
it would help the United States take responsibility as well for saying, well, these guns are flowing down and being part of this. Um, so when Kamala Harris addressed uh, the public in Guatemala, really with the saying, do not come to the United States, do not go there. Uh, there was a fair amount of people asking this question. Well, what about the United States role in the violence in this region? So, Yohan, talk to me about what the U.S. government's approach could be that might make a meaningful difference in the lives of folks in Mexico. So first on this issue of guns, I mean, it's crazy to me that no action is being taken and they're not even going for the low hanging fruit on this. I mean, I've been around looking at the cases of how people are getting the guns and it's not not about stopping the rights of of people's Second Amendment to buy guns and uh, having the right to have guns to to protect their families or for whatever reasons. But you see cases where people are going doing things like buying 85 guns in single purchases, where supposed housewives or young kids, 23-year-olds, are buying ca- uh, Barrett 50 calibers, which fire bullets like the size of small knives. They're buying them in stores, you know, one, two, three, four, and are not being stopped. So some basic law enforcement that could be done. And you see things like universal background checks, which would really make a difference in this supported by 89% of Americans in service, 81% of conservatives, the majority of gun owners. And that's still not happening. It kind of mystifies me a bit why there's still not movement on this issue. But as well on the issue of, of drugs, you pointed out, um, America should, you know, needs to rethink this. It's 50 years now since uh, Richard Nixon launched the war on drugs, declared drugs the public enemy number one. You had last year record overdose deaths in the United States. We've now got huge amounts of violence in Mexico. So it's got to be a rethink of this. There are moves to legalize marijuana, but you know, the issue of heroin, according to the American Medical Association, only 10% of the addicts are getting the help they need. So there really needs to be a lot more effort to try and give help. And for every addict who is no longer buying that heroin, that's a lot of money that, that will be going down this, this kind of line back to here, paying for people to be buying guns, training killers, corrupting cops and so forth. I keep thinking about those 250,000 people reported dead, how many of those guns coming from the U.S. And then I keep thinking about Vice President Harris saying, do not come because the trip is dangerous. When you talk with folks in Mexico and Central America, how are they calculating the danger of remaining versus the danger of attempting to migrate? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's this, you know, there are two different categories, you could say. There's a bit of a blur, but you have refugees, people who are fleeing, literally fleeing for their lives. Uh, and you have um, economic migrants. And sometimes there is a blur here because people are running sometimes from both hunger and bullets. But look, in, in, in some cases where people, uh, and, and there are you know some very concrete cases here where people are, you know, have a hit on them from a cartel working with corrupt police. So when people are running from these things for their lives, you know, they're, they're going to try and make the journey or whatever for many of these cases, um, you know, if, they, if they, they're suffering that kind of threat. Uh, but also the, the, the terms of the violence also affects the economic situation because you have, um, like in Honduras, El Salvador, large-scale extortion happening on businesses by people with firearms, you know, one case, for example, of a uh, family I talked to heading from Guatemala, where they were running just a, an orange juice, a juice stand. And then people said, give us a thousand dollars or we're going to murder your children. 
and they just left in the, in the middle of the night and headed towards the United States. And that really strangles the, the, the economics. I mean, they were making a small amount of money and happy with that. But when the violence factor really came in, that was a game changer. And they just, you know, they felt they had to run. Johan Grillo is a journalist based in Mexico City. He's also the author of Blood Gun Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels. Johan, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks much. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Joe Manchin. Senator Joe Manchin, he's a Democrat. Senator Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin. Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Joe Manchin. Manchin, Manchin, Manchin. These days, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin is the center of the Washington, D.C. political universe. And it's not because he's the Senate's most senior member. It's not because he represents the most populous state. It's not even because he's used favors to strategically amass credit with dozens of his colleagues, like the way Lyndon Johnson did during his years as master of the Senate. Nope. Joe Manchin is important because he is the Democrat least likely to vote like all other Democrats. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song? Manchin was the only Democrat to vote yes on Brett Kavanaugh. He was the only Democrat to vote no on DACA. And he was the only Democrat to vote yes on confirming Jeff Sessions as attorney general. Still, it would be wrong to see Manchin as a Democrat in name only. During his time in the Senate, he's voted with most Democrats more than 70% of the time. (laughs) But 70% is not going to cut it for President Biden, who has laid out an ambitious agenda and seeks to expand the social safety net, universal preschool, additional funding for HBCUs, and providing free community college for two years are just a few of those wish list items. But moving forward on those outstanding pieces of legislation won't be easy. Yeah, 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell at a press conference in May. 100% of my focus is on standing up to this administration. What we have in the United States Senate is total unity from Susan Collins to Ted Cruz in opposition to what the new Biden administration is trying to do to this country. Senator Manchin has also drawn the ire of progressive voters and progressive members of Congress. Here's what Democratic freshman Congressman Jamal Bowman said about Senator Manchin on CNN earlier this week. Joe Manchin has become the new Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, during Obama's presidency, said he would do everything in his power to stop Obama. He's also repeated that now during the Biden presidency by saying he would do everything in his power to stop President Biden. And now Joe Manchin is doing everything in his power to stop 
democracy and to stop our work for the people, the work that the people sent us here to do. But Senator Manchin doesn't see it that way. I'm not a roadblock at all. The best politics is good government. I can't believe that people believe that if you just do it my way, that'll give us the momentum to get through the next election. But when you do something that everyone tags on to, and I've seen good things happen, the people voted against it, took credit for it when they went back home. We won't give this system a chance to work. I'm not going to be part of blowing up this Senate of ours or basically this democracy of ours or the republic that we have. And Manchin's push for bipartisanship above all else has prompted plenty of side-eyeing and hair-pulling frustration from Democrats. But Joe? Joe does not care. Literally. Back in 2017, when Democrats tried to pull Manchin into alignment with party priorities, Manchin responded by telling the Charleston Gazette Mail, quote, I don't give a You understand? I don't give up. Don't care if I get elected. Don't care if I get defeated. How about that? If they think that because I'm up for election that I can be wrangled into voting for that I don't like and can't explain, well, they're all crazy. Unquote. So let me ask a question. Does anybody remember that viral video from 2011 about the similarly independent honey badger? This is the honey badger. Watch it run in slow motion. The honey badger has been referred to by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most fearless animal in all of the animal kingdom. It really doesn't give a Honey badger don't care, just takes what it wants. Oh my God, watch it dig. Joining me now is Dave Mistich, senior reporter for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Dave, welcome to The Takeaway. Glad to be here. So I just characterized Senator Manchin as a little bit of a honey badger, doing what it is he wants to do, being independent. But what does he, in fact, care about? I'm sure he cares about something. I mean, I I think genuinely he does care about the state of West Virginia. I mean, I I think that uh, if you if you talk to talk to Joe uh, Senator Manchin, uh, you'll hear oftentimes him saying that, you know, uh, he uh, if there's a vote in 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 Washington, uh, he has to come back to West Virginia and explain the reasons for voting for it uh, to his constituents. And I think that um, you hear that time and time and time again um, from him. Um, and while I think, you know, his voting record upsets a lot of people, including uh, a lot of progressives here um, and even some sometimes, you know, people in the middle here, um, you know, he he really ju- genuinely does believe that he has to uh, has to justify every vote that he that he takes here to the people. I feel like it can be tempting, especially for maybe national observers and commentators, to describe Manchin as really lacking anything in common with Democrats. But that does feel insincere insincere to me. I want to take a moment and listen to him talking back in March about the minimum wage on this week. President Joe Biden knows how to get a deal done. And the bottom line is there is not one senator out of 100 that doesn't want to raise the minimum wage. 725 is sinfully low. We must raise it. I agree with President Biden when he says, if you go to work every day, you should be above the poverty guidelines. Well, the poverty guidelines to be above that if you're going to work and working full time should be at $11 base. That should be your base. And then we index it with inflation to make sure it never gets back in this political conundrum we have right now. It shouldn't be a political football. 
So, so there's a senator making a case for raising the minimum wage, but he's also making a case that kind of $15 an hour is untenable. So, so is this about like Manchin lacking political courage, or is it that everyone else is sort of lacking good political sense? I don't know. I mean, I think one way that that Joe Manchin can be could be described, uh, at least, um, you know, in his own way of thinking, is is that he tries to be pragmatic about everything. Um, I, I think that clip right there examples the way that that Joe, uh, that Senator Manchin, I guess, is, it tries to um, um, tries to to hedge between two different sides and try to tries to find the middle between two different arguments. So. Uh, I think that that, you know, that's just one example of many uh, that you'd hear from him. So, Dave, I kind of love that it's almost hard for you to keep calling him Senator Manchin, that you, you slip into Joe, because that suggests to me that he must be sort of a, you know, I, I live near West Virginia, but not in West Virginia. It suggests to me he might be kind of a friendly guy, a pleasant person to be around. Is that yeah. part of his charm relative to, you know, the huge margins by which he is reelected regularly? Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, and I, I've been trying to catch myself as a matter of respect there, I, I, and I'm <laughs> glad that you pointed that out. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the senator is very personable. Um, I, I think he's really approachable. Um, you know, I I think and you, you mentioned these these large margins. I, I think it's 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 important to point out that in 2018, you know, he had a, uh, a primary challenger in Paula Jean Swearingen, a very progressive uh, candidate who wound up pulling 30% of the vote. And I think that for a lot of people here in the state, that was a moment where people realized that maybe he wasn't uh, able to be taken down in his in his seat, but there was definitely uh, a realization that there was a movement, um, I guess, in a direction other than him, maybe even against him. So, um, you know, when, when, when people talk about, you know, uh, you know, Senator Manchin's security uh, in Washington and in the Senate. I think that, you know, that's a that's a very complicated answer and, and maybe not sort of a yes or no whether or not he's safe. I'm, I'm wondering about this difference that we hear between kind of pragmatic, bipartisan, reach across the aisle, Senator Manchin in the way that he self-describes versus Senator Mitch McConnell saying, look, 100 percent of our people are together and we are all trying to stop the Biden agenda from moving forward. Again, does that suggest that that Manchin really is pragmatic or is he sort of not realizing the Senate that he's currently part of as opposed to, you know, maybe a Senate that operated differently um, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago? Well, I, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, again, back to the back to the beginning, it's like, you know, I, I, I said that, you know, Senator Manchin um, has to come back and justify everything to the people of West Virginia. And I think it's important to realize that he is the only, you know, statewide Democrat in the state as of now. I mean, West Virginia is a, an extremely red state at this point and, and leans conservative uh, on most issues. And I think that, you know, uh, Senator Manchin ha- has always kept in mind, um, you know, what what the the will of of West Virginia has been like um, and, and the way that his constituency is leaned. Um that's not to say that, you know, he's voted uh, counter to that at all or, or counter to, you know, uh, a wider group of Democrats and their priorities. But I think it's important to keep in mind the way that the state looks here in West Virginia. Um, and I think that, you know, with all this national media attention on Senator Manchin at this point, there's a lot of people that I see either on Twitter or I talk to in person 
and they're they're kind of flabbergasted by the you know the the amount of attention all this is getting because Mansion has always been a a a character to um, to sort of complicate uh, things or or to run counter to what uh, most people would expect you know just given his political affiliation. So I'm just wondering for West Virginians, if if it's also surprising to find yourselves as the fulcrum state, the focus of so much national attention. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, and I'll, I'll speak for, you know, other other reporters here. I mean, I think a lot of us feel like we're the the, the Joe Manchin whisperers when when at the same time it's <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it's not um, uh, it's not as as complicated to people here uh, as it is to the to the national media. But at the same time. That's not to say that there's not a lot of people here that 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 are fascinated by the amount of power that he's wielded and and the uh, the effect that he's had on on the function of the Senate and uh, and legislation as a whole. Dave, as a Southerner myself, I appreciate your um, your wisdom there. That like you know, it's not that complicated. National media. <laughs> Dave Mistich is a senior reporter for West Virginia Public Broadcasting, and thanks for coming to do a little bit of Senator Manchin whispering with me today. Hey, no problem. Thanks. Now, West Virginia is currently a trifecta state. That means Republicans control the state House of Delegates, the state Senate, and the governor's seat. But honestly, that's relatively new. In fact, it took Governor Jim Justice, who ran for office as a Democrat, to switch his party affiliation in order for the trifecta to take hold in 2017. So what's going on with Democrats in West Virginia? Well, as the West Virginia Democratic Party tries to modernize and diversify, they're discovering just how hard change can be. Recently, state Dems formed an affirmative action committee. Yeah, I know, it's it's kind of an odd term. But this is probably because the requirement for all state delegations to have such a committee was initially imposed by the DNC back in 1974, when Gerald Ford was president. West Virginia is just now getting around to forming their committee. We were ordered to have an affirmative action committee in 1974. It's 2021. The adoption of the affirmative action plan without the involvement of the affirmative action committee, I'm lost on that. I don't see that there's any authority. We did not have any any Hispanics, any Black people, or anybody that's actually on the current Affirmative Action Committee drafting the draft. And why are our Affirmative Action members not part of this conversation? I'm mystified by that. I'm concerned that we are actually, you know, deepening the the doo-doo in which we find ourselves with the National Democratic Party. Phew! That sound from a meeting of West Virginia Democrats earlier this month. And to learn a bit more about the Democratic Party dynamics in West Virginia, I sat down with Hollis Lewis, the newly minted co-chair of that affirmative action committee and also co-chair of the Black Caucus. I asked Hollis what it means to be a Democrat in West Virginia in 2021. Well, that's a great question. And like you just said, I mean, uh, we're looked at as a red state, but we have not been that. That's sort of a a, a new revelation of as until like maybe a couple years ago, we were definitely a blue straight state. And that was kind of our history. Even our governor, he was he ran as a Democrat, then sort of flipped to a Republican. So I think what it means to be a Democrat now is that we're trying to find our identity. We're trying to uh, like sort of reestablish ourselves. And I think that to your previous question, you have um, sort of a um, sort of the veteran group and you have the emergence of the younger group. And we're trying to find a balance between one another. 
Ooh-wee, Hollis, you have said a mouthful there because that is truly what is going on in so <laughs> yeah. many state Democratic parties. Yeah. And maybe most especially in the South because of yeah. the ways that, that race works. So I'm so fascinated. I've always thought West Virginia is fascinating because y'all exist because of the Civil War, right? Like yeah. West Virginia was like, nope, we're about to be free. We are going over here and joining the Union. Peace out, Virginia. Can you talk to me about what race within the Democratic Party is feeling like right now for West Virginia Democrats? I think, and not only just here in West Virginia, I would think nationally, like what we're trying to do, particularly like this, and I'm just speaking for myself as a black as a black person. What we're trying to do is that we want to continue to represent the party. We want to continue to uplift this party. But we're sort of at a crossroads in which we have to have our voices heard. Um, no longer can we sit back and vote and, and you know, get our Stacey Abrams on and, and do all these amazing <laughs> works to uh, sort of uplift this party and bring it to to prominence and not have our voices heard. Not only just not I have a voices heard to be at the, you know, the ta- be at these tables and not just be at these tables, but actually be a contributing and valued member at these tables. So talk to me about the caucuses. Um, They are in certain ways 40 years late um, because you all were meant to have already had um, the uh, identity-based caucuses and the affirmative action committee as, you know, kind of an edict from the larger uh, DNC. But but you're here now. And since they exist, what are you hoping to accomplish? Basically, what we want to do is that we want to bring like our perspective to the table. We want to um, be a part of the process and let, you know, the party at large know that, hey, not only are we here, uh, we have a lot of voting members and we feel like we would be, the, we can be the ones to reach those voters. We want to be the ones, not only just reach the voters, to educate the voters. We want to cultivate candidates, you know, candidates who, again, may look different from you know, traditional candidates or may just have a different perspective from traditional candidates. We want to have sort of a a multifaceted approach into making sure that our voices, our perspective, our racial identity, sexual identities, whatever is uplifted within the party, but also still work to move the party forward. You know, it's interesting to me to hear you talk about it in those ways, particularly um, in these terms about how not only the voters, but also the candidates being you know, potentially being groomed for um, positions both in the state and perhaps at the federal level could change. And it makes me wonder if Senator Manchin's decision not to support the For the People Act has less to do with what's going on in D.C. and more to do with what's going on in West Virginia. Is Mm. there in this kind of tension within the party a concern that bringing in those new voters and new faces might unseat existing Democrats um, who hold power? Well, I mean, I think anytime you are trying to do something that's different, anytime anything is changing, you're going to be, if you're used to doing things a certain way, there's always going to be a level of apprehension, right? But I think that we're in a position now, um, not only just within politics, right? But we're in a position now with our current drug epidemic. I mean, we're sort of at the mm-hmm. the center of opioids and, and all these crazy pills and heroin and everything like that. So we're at a crossroads in which we have to start to cultivate new talents. Not only that, but you uh, count our age demographic, which is maybe a slightly higher than um, 
some other states and just, you know, and finally, just like a look towards the future. We have to if we want to, you know, maintain young people here, we want to attract young people to come here. We have to start to look different. We have to start to move different and we have to start thinking different about how we look not only within the context of our, our party, but within the context of the state and, you know, the nation and world at large. I also just want to clarify this for our listeners. So you are obviously holding these leadership positions within the party, but you don't currently hold an elected um, office. So let me just ask, are you thinking about running at some point? Uh, Maybe, maybe. We'll see. (laughs) Uh, It may may be something. uh, (laughs) That's a yes, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) It may be something that happens in the new future. But uh, for now, I'm, I'm, I'm here now, so we'll see. If you had an opportunity to sit down with Senator Manchin and to talk with him, particularly about the For the People Act, what would you want to really be able to get across to Senator Manchin about um, the position you'd like to see him take? If I had a conversation, I would just try to let's push everything to the side. Let's not concern ourselves with the bill, filibuster, bipartisanship or anything like that. I would say, what do you want, you know, the future of West Virginia to be to pass something so monumental, so historic? And you are the deciding the tiebreaker vote. That looks very good upon just like changing the narrative and the stereotypes that a lot of people think about our state and the people in it. And if we want to um, be a state that has a future, you know, we've lost, we're losing population by the dozen. We Our cities are slowly shrinking. So if we want to be a, a state that actually has a future um, and that can attract companies that economic um, development here, then I think the, not just this, but these are sort of the steps we have to take. You know, we don't want to be looked upon as a, a state that, again, that people are already having these sort of preconceived notions about. We want to be looked, we're forward thinking, we're about the future. Um, so that's kind of the, the messaging mm-hmm. that I would have. Hollis Lewis is co-chair of the West Virginia Democratic Party's Black Caucus and co-chair of the Affirmative Action Committee. Hollis, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, people, it has been so nice being with you this week. And I am back with you again next week. We're going to have a lot to talk about, so don't miss anything. Now, it's time for some shout outs to the squad that gets this show on air each and every week for you. Milton Ruiz and Sham Sundra were our board ops this week. Vince Fairchild is our senior broadcast engineer. Jay Cowett is our director. Jackie Martin and Jose Oliveras are our line producers. Nancy Solomon is our editor. Amber Hall is our senior producer. And our producer crew is Ethan Oberman, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, and Lydia McMullen-Laird. Polly Irungu is our digital editor. And David Gable is our executive assistant. Our fearless leader? Well, that's Lee Hill, our EP. Thanks so much for spending part of your week with us. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Takeaway.